Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Bernadette. Good to see you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. Well, I'm excited to share your journey because you're someone who has had a strong experience as an operator in the tech world in Southeast Asia as the chief of staff at multiple companies. But how did you introduce yourself? How would you introduce yourself on your professional journey? Sure. My name is Bernadette. At the moment, I am the general manager at Entrepreneur First. We are the world's leading talent investor, which means we're taking bets on people rather than ideas or businesses. We're bringing together CEOs and CTOs to build what we hope to be the, the next set of world-class companies are right here in Singapore. And like you mentioned previous to this, I've served as chief of staff to the founders at Funding Societies and prior to that, the founders at Grab since I've been in Singapore. So that's a little bit about, I guess, my history so far. Awesome. And so, you know, let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, I'm so curious, like, what was it like to be a management consultant, you know, out of university? Because, you know, we're both formal management consultants. So I'm just curious about that experience. I'm sure, Jeremy, you are a much better management consultant than I was. I actually had an arts degree, so I studied political science and French, which I then organically parlayed into a career at VCG. I think VCG was a, a very challenging but great growth period in my life. I'd never opened Excel before I got to consulting. I thought consulting was about simply talking to people and helping people through change management. I didn't realize it would be a lot more models and slides than I had anticipated. But I, I feel like while I was a, a pretty poor consultant, I got a lot out of it in terms of thinking through different types of frameworks and learning different ways to dissect business problems. And perhaps most importantly, also communicating that change or recommendation in a really succinct and persuasive way. I think those would be the two things I got out of my time at BCG. I'm not sure they got much out of me though. <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, the story of formal consultants in the technology world is a very common one. Myself included as well. Here we all are. So I'm just kind of curious as well, is like, obviously, a lot of management consultants make that transition into technology. Why do you think that is? I don't think I could speak for a lot of folks. I can definitely speak for myself, which is I, I really just missed being operational. So prior to starting at BCG, I had the privilege of looking after a state for a national NGO that we had in Australia called the Oak Tree Foundation. We would raise money for international development projects, actually specifically mostly in the Asia-Pacific region. And I loved that. I loved working on fundraising. I loved working on campaigning and actually seeing things being able to change. I think one of the most challenging experiences I had at BCG was bumping into a client six months later. I said, how's the change going? And he said, oh, well, we've, we've actually kind of stopped after you guys left. And I missed being able to see that change the whole way through. And I missed being able to be part of operationalizing that change. So for me... I think I wanted to be in a slightly less formal environment as well. So I think technology was a, a really great match for both those things. You could see change. Things were moving at a very, very fast pace. And you could, at least for me, I think, bring a little bit more of myself to my role. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is that for so many management consultants, they have to unlearn stuff and, you know, learn new stuff. I'm kind of curious what you felt like, management consultants should unlearn when they join the operator world? 
Oh, absolutely. I I think one of the things I had to unlearn very quickly was you don't need to put a slide deck together for everything that you want to propose. Sometimes a one-pager is fine. Sometimes it's fine to just come in with a skeletal plan instead of having thought through everything because the situation is so dynamic that if you try and plan for every eventuality, you might actually either just miss the boat in terms of how fast your competition could be moving or your analysis paralysis, which is you, you've tried to think through too many different scenarios and you've just missed the urgency that the environment calls for. So that's definitely one thing I, I felt I had to unlearn. I think the second thing that I, I really learned from one of the wonderful salespeople I worked with in LinkedIn Australia was, and we say it in consulting to some extent, but I think the client is always right is actually, I learned that really at LinkedIn. I think she explained the concept to a client no more than six times in the same hour. And the patience and the diligence she took with it, it was it was client care, I think, at its finest, as opposed to trying to teach someone. She was just trying to be on the same team as them. And I think that is a slightly different model to what I'd experienced, which was th there's a model of very strong apprenticeship in consulting. And whether that's internal or external, you want to be teaching. But for her, it was just so obvious that you wanted to be on the same team. And she upsold that account 130% which is just so impressive. She took the time, the grit, the patience to do this in a way that she met someone where they were rather than trying to take them to somewhere that they weren't ready to be yet. I thought she did it brilliantly. And I, I learned a lot of that through my time with spending time with the sales team in Australia. Wow, that's a good tip for a lot of folks, I think. And I totally agree with you that just because it's a slide doesn't mean that it's a good idea either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you are, and then you make the transition both in the technology world, big tech, right? LinkedIn is large, and then there's a lot of folks who move into the younger tech companies. And so there's a bit of a culture shift for so many folks as well. So what is that culture shift you would articulate for people who are making transition from big tech to startups proper? Oh, absolutely. I felt like at LinkedIn, there was a team of us, and you were so fortunate to learn from really world-class colleagues. So I looked after product marketing for Asia Pacific, but I was part of a global team. So learned from fantastic people who'd had a wealth more experience than I did in Europe, in North America. And when I moved to Grab, I was their first product marketing hire, and it was just me. And I think that you shrink down the network that you can draw on. But I think it's also wonderful in that you then have to self-learn and self-teach rather than maybe have that I wouldn't call it a safety net, but I'd certainly call it an, an expert network that you can draw on, which is there are typically in big tech people who've done this before, done it better than you, that you can really learn from and say, how did you do this? How would you think about this problem? And when you're taking the scale down at, at the time, you have to become that person and you either have to build external networks to find that guidance or that expert advice or... Sometimes you just have to build the plane while you fly it, which I think is also really exciting. And I think you you kind of have less resources, but in some ways you get to have more authorship as well, which I think is a gift. Yeah, amazing. And, you know, what advice do you give to people who take on that crazy role called chief of staff because you've done it twice at two early stage companies? So what advice would you give people as they evaluate whether to take it on, how to be successful in it? I think there's many great chiefs of staff out there. And I think one of the ways that you can think about the role is, are you somebody who enjoys 
relatively constant firefighting? Are you somebody who's okay to be thrown into lots of different projects without necessarily a ton of context that are typically urgent and important? Do you enjoy that? Do you thrive under that type of environment? And I have to actually say, I, I thank consulting for that because you, you do get thrown into projects, especially as an associate. You don't have a ton of say on where you're going and how you're going. And I think that in some ways was, was a really helpful preparatory experience for a chief of staff role. I think how to be successful, and I, I'm sure I didn't get this right all the time, is try and solve problems for founders before they become problems. It's it's your role to, in some ways, be that bridge between an executive team and what's happening maybe a few layers beneath them or on the ground, so to speak, and help people understand and develop that organizational empathy both ways. What's top of leaders' minds that folks in other parts of the organization might not know about? What's top of mind for people who are just starting their career with you and want to build a long-lasting and successful career where they are? That's really important for leaders to hear. I think having relationships at both, I guess, all across the organization is actually a really important enabler to be successful in, in that role and being somebody that can be trusted across the organization. That's a lot, right? <laughs> a lot of things to know about yourself. How would someone know if they are ready to be a chief of staff? I don't know if anyone's ready to be a chief of staff because I think that it's um, all, many of the chiefs of staff I've spoken to, I don't think actually all, I don't think anyone said, I want this, I'm ready for this. Um, I think it was typically a, a, a kind of circumstantial, hey, like I want to do more to help the organization. What can I do? And then either the role got created or the role emerged. And I think one of the things you can think about is, what do you most enjoy doing? Are you somebody who really loves to see projects end-to-end? And, and I'll be honest, I think that's also part of why I transitioned out of chief of staff, because that's that's something that's really important to me, which is I love to see a project through almost very much through to its completion, not that anything is really done in in any sense of the word in tech or in startups broadly. But I think if you really enjoy kind of project-based work, if you enjoy being in an influencing but not decision-making role, I think it's something people can and should consider. I think it's wonderful for your growth. I think it gives you exposure to a whole bunch of issues, challenges, perspectives that you might not otherwise see at that point in your career. I, I always used to say it's it's so much fun being the least important person in the room where decisions are being made. And that's that's really how I thought about the role in, in both instances of it. What's interesting is that obviously there's always a big collaboration dynamic between the chief of staff versus the more like functional arm sort of business in terms of leadership. So there's that interesting piece where you're like, like you said, kind of like floating across multiple dynamics. What's the best way for a chief of staff to succeed in that horizontal collaboration with other leaders? Because, you know, you can get quite prickly, you can step on each other's toes and, you know, scoping dynamics, and then it's also a temporary assignment, not a full thing. So how, how do you recommend chief of staff to be thinking about that? I mean, I've definitely run into challenges there. I don't know many chiefs of staff who've managed to kind of dance through the fire completely unscathed. I think we... We would think, I, I say we, because I, I had a really great collection of chief of staff friends when I was in the role and, and we would kind of share tips and tricks and, and occasionally meet up to to kind of help each other along because similarly, it can be sometimes a bit of a lonely role. You might be the only chief of staff in your organization and you're squeezed between what 
potentially your founder wants, maybe even what you want and what you're also hearing from stakeholders. So I think coming back to your question though, Jeremy, how do you how do you navigate the stakeholder management side of things? I think trying to offer what you believe to be a fair and balanced view to actually seek to understand why something hasn't been operationalized or achieved in the way that it had the business had hoped it would. So I think starting with a spirit of inquiry is really important. So really understanding, hey, what are the roadblocks? To what extent could we have overcome these with either additional resources, if we had worked together better, if we had approached it in a different way, did we start on the wrong trajectory? I think seeking a spirit of inquiry and and making sure, I think it's always really tempting in a high pressure situation to say like, okay, where can we lay blame? And if you can step back from that and say, what's the fundamental problem we need to be solving? Who can be instrumental in solving this problem? And how do we convince them that this is something that they can and should want to solve together? And starting to understand why it hasn't been solved in that way, rather than trying to get to the point of, hey, who is who is to blame for this? And how do we get, how do we kind of start there? Like, how do you start as far away from that as possible, actually? When you think about that, it feels like there could be quite a lot of debate about what's best for the company. And a lot of that obviously is colored by the functional prisms of, you know, whatever you're dealing with, you know, your prior experience, professional experience. So how should that communication happen? Is it like a whiteboarding session? Is it going for a walk? Is it drinks? How does that happen from your perspective? I I love what you've suggested because I think all of them are equally valuable methods. I think you have to tailor your approach to the person you're speaking to. And I don't think this is just a chief of staff thing. I think this is very relevant, no matter what role you're in, to try and seek to understand and serve your counterpart in the best way possible. That might mean putting yourself in a situation you may not prefer. My preferred method is to typically just go one-on-one with a coffee with somebody. But I know some of my my team now and previously like to drink. So as and when Singapore reopens and, and we're able to do those things, how, how can you be flexible? How can you be flexible and still feel authentic to what you're looking to achieve as well? And one of the interesting things is that for Achiever staff is that they got to figure out how to build that trust horizontally with their peers who are all functional leaders and great professionals in their own right and carving out a space, but also the fact that you're reporting still to the same boss. And so there's this interesting like equals, but sometimes first on some issues among equals and sometimes below the others on different times. So how does, how should Chief of Staff manage that? like transitionary or that like fluctuating role, right? In the eyes of the team and uh, the founder. I actually, I mean, I think it really depends on how the founder sets up the chief of staff role. So I think some will set it up as this person is here as an enabler to support our team. And so in you're in the room, but you're, you're never really part of decision-making, but you're fortunate to be an observer, maybe an influencer. There are other founders who will set up chief of staff to be somebody who gets a seat at the table. And so I think it's, I think people talk about positional influence or positional authority. And to your point that that does fluctuate, but I think it's really a a good conversation for you to have upfront with your founder to say, hey, like, what is the role you'd like me to play? How can I best support you? I guess it will depend on different stages of growth within the business where the chief of staff themselves is at and where the founder is at in terms of what they need to help them be most successful in the role. 
Well, let's talk about this two ways. So there's a lot of founders out there who are all dreaming about bringing in the chief of staff because they're like, wow, we raise our seed series A. I would like to scale and there's so much to do. So chief of staff is going to be a great solution. How should founders really be setting up this chief of staff of success? Because I think you and I have seen both successful chief of staffs and also seen failed chief of staffs, which both sides are well-meaning. Both sides are very professional and great executives in their own right, but it doesn't work out. So how would you say kind of like is your advice for founders who are thinking about building or setting up a chief of staff role? I think on both ends, because I, I guess I also chat with people who are aspiring chiefs of staff. One, I always say like, I don't think I got it right 100% of the time and, and probably not even close to that. But the second thing I would say is be really clear about what you want your scope to be. And, and ask the founder. And, and the founder should also be really clear about what they want the scope to be. And understandably, that will change and evolve in a fast-growing startup. And no one's, I don't ever say like, oh, this should be cast in stone. But what I do think is if there's a fundamental mismatch between what someone's hoping to learn from the role and actually where the founder needs support and enablement, it will be, by definition, not a great partnership. And I think it's really important to understand what the founder is looking for. Are they looking for somebody to help them turbocharge their admin? Are they looking for somebody to help them run a net new line of business? So sometimes I've seen chiefs of staff be set up that way. Are they looking for somebody to firefight across a number of projects as and when they arise? And, and these are all actually very different roles. And so I think chief of staff has become kind of an umbrella term that isn't actually very descriptive anymore. You don't necessarily know what you're signing up to when you become a chief of staff. But I think if people had more explicit conversations, because the other part of the chief of staff role is sometimes your KPIs can be quite unclear. And it's not always that the founder's success is your success. And in many ways, it, it might not be at all. So I would say be really explicit about what you're hoping to get out of the role from a founder perspective, as well as a chief of staff perspective. And how do you know you've knocked it out of the park? What are the KPIs or OKRs you want to set for this individual to help them be successful as well? And help yourself be successful as a founder. All founders have so much to manage. Another person who is not as directionful as you would like them to be is is not something that's going to make your life better. So who do you think a founder should pick to be chief of staff? Like, are there any attributes that say, like, this is a better fit for chief of staff versus this is a worse or less likely outcome for a successful chief of staff outcome? I think it really depends on the type of chief of staff you want. So whether you want a firefighter, whether you want a potentially a launcher, whether you want someone to own a function as well as juggle the excess that might be on your plate as a founder, I don't think there's an ideal personality or experience or, or set of experiences. I often think that if I were a founder, which, which I've never been, but I would love somebody who would speak truth to power. I would love somebody who would say, I'm not sure you're going in the right direction. I often think of actually Leo McGarry from The West Wing. I don't know if you watch The West Wing, Jeremy, but he was the chief of staff to President Bartlett and they would have raging disagreements, but Leo was a steadfast, comforting presence to Bartlett. He drove an agenda. He drove a staff incredibly well, but was never afraid to actually say, no, you've crossed the line. So to me, he's always been the, the role model of what a chief of staff should look like. But it's also a bit different. It's a political context. But absolutely, I think, should I ever be fortunate enough to be a founder, I'd look for a Leo McGarry. <laughs> so there you are. And obviously, one of the questions that you know I've talked to other chiefs of staff about and 
I think other people have asked them as well is what's the career trajectory for a chief of staff person? What does it look like internally? What to expect that externally? So I'm just kind of curious because you know, I'd just love to hear your point of view on that. Yeah, I like I said, I had a I had a small chief of staff I, group of friends. And I think we have all actually gone in very different directions. So I think one of the best parts of the role is I've been really grateful for my experiences as chief of staff. I think it really accelerates your exposure in a business. And so you get to understand what types of work, what types of disciplines you're most interested in, and what are the things you'd love to retain from the role and what are the some of the things you'd like to move on from. And so I think, just to give a, a short set of examples, I think one of them now leads, has, has actually gone on to start their own business in a consulting space. One of them has gone on to move from the private sector to the public sector. I see some chiefs of staff go on to become business unit owners, I guess similar to what I've done. So maybe not a business unit, but I've, I've moved to EF to look after the team here in Singapore. And there are also some, I think, to be honest, at LinkedIn, if I remember correctly, who just continue to be stellar individual contributors. I think it it depends on really what you've learned about yourself during that time in the role. Do you like leading teams? Do you love being a superstar individual contributor? Do you like leading through influence? Do you like leading through being able to make decisions? How much disagree and commit do you enjoy having someone set the agenda and for you to go away and operationalize that beautifully? I think there's just so many different paths and I think it's very much up to the individual to you know, chart that course themselves. If you could say, what are the top three things that someone going to achieve a staff role will learn at the end of that experience? I always think the the role is so different across different places. So I guess I can talk about maybe the top three things I've learned. One of the things I've learned definitely is how much I like being surrounded by people who are just pushing themselves and others around them to heights that were previously unimaginable. I think working with founders, and I think I've, I've managed to scale a little bit of that at EF because now I work with so many more founders at the same time, is, is just such an incredible experience. These people are pioneers. They're innovators. They are saying yes to everybody who said no to them before. And I think that's such an incredible place to be. So I, I feel like learning, one of the things I've learned is working with people who are 10x better than you will make you better. It will make it very challenging for you, but it'll also really fundamentally improve you as a professional and and hopefully as a person as well. I think another thing I've learned is perspective, actually. Whatever is on my plate is a fraction of whatever is on a founder's plate. And so always trying to take a zoomed out view, which is whatever you might be stressed about, whatever you might find unpleasant or frustrating is a fraction of the challenge that they go through every day. And so trying to zoom out, but also trying to step into other people's shoes, I think is is another, you know, maybe soft skill or perspective that I've learned. I'm still working on it. And I think the last part is thinking about what makes you effective and how do you measure that when you don't necessarily have very clearly defined goals. Because your goal, roughly, as a chief of staff is to make your founder successful. Now, your founder could have been successful with or without you. And so that's hard to measure. And I think actually one of the things I learned was I, I actually struggle a little bit with that. I don't enjoy being in roles where I can't measure my impact. I can't measure my outcomes very clearly. And so from that perspective, I don't know if that's the kind of learning you are looking for, but that's something that I learned, at least for myself, is very important in whatever I was going to pursue next. 
Amazing. Looking at the next chapter here, which is that, what has been a time that you have personally been brave? I think looking back, it seems brave slash reckless now. But I moved to Singapore when I was 23 to take on a role that I had very little business taking on. I looked after product marketing for APAC for LinkedIn's talent solutions business. And I was so fortunate and so grateful that LinkedIn took that bet on me. I was in a new country, in a new function, and in a brand new role that I'd never had exposure to. And they they gave me the chance to bet on myself. And I think I wasn't as scared as I should have been back then, but it was such a steep learning curve. And I think someone once told me like, you try and change one of these things a year. You, tr- you maybe change your job, you maybe change your location. And I came over and I changed both of those by myself. My then fiance, now husband, had gone to the US for business school. And I was, I was alone in a new country trying to figure out a new job and a new function that I'd never really had exposure to. And I'm really glad I did it. It's, it's changed our lives for much for the better. I've had exposure to, I think, the incredible rise of Southeast Asian tech at the same time. I wish I'd been a bit more circumspect at the time and realized what a big life change that was. But I think sometimes bravery is is diving headfirst and being incredibly, maybe naively optimistic about what your outcomes could be. Wow, what a story and it's an incredible one. You know, there's so many folks who have that transition because they're moving to Southeast Asia because Southeast Asia is such a permeable region that really has very low barriers to coming in in terms of immigration, in terms of capital, in terms of networks. It's kind of this weird melting pot of like East and West and Southeast Asia. What advice do you have for people who are deciding whether to make that move to Southeast Asia? Oh, I would absolutely encourage them to do it. I think there is so much still latent emerging rocket ship growth here that there is there's there's almost something at every stage for people i think if you want to be a scaler you can if you want to be a builder you can one of the things that i feel i've never done enough of is be hyper local and really deeply understand how different the problems in different geographies could be and when i first moved to singapore i don't think i ever thought Singapore was indicative of the region. I think Singapore is not indicative of anywhere. It's an incredible place that maybe just is by itself. But I think really learning the nuances of different geographies, even within different geographies, different preferences in major cities versus regional cities versus rural cities, and really understanding your customer is is something that I think you can never do enough of in this region because there's there's so much complexity. There's historical complexity, there's cultural complexity, there's geographical complexity, and it's it's rich, it's nuanced. How should someone, when they move geographies, especially, for example, moving to Southeast Asia, what would you advise them to do in their first three months to make sure that it's a lasting move? Because I think you and I have seen a lot of people make the move and then it kind of like all falls apart to some extent. And for others, it kind of like, it's a smooth transition. So what would you say is that difference? Oh, that's a great question, Jeremy. I would say in a non, non-COVID constrained environment, I would encourage people, and I'm sure lots of people move here to travel. That's maybe some trite advice. One of my happiest months in Singapore was when I set myself a challenge to say yes to everything that month. So it was yes to dancing at a colleague's wedding at, at their Sankeet. It was yes to going to a 
music festival that I'm not cool enough to go to because my friends wanted to go. And I, I think that was one of the happiest and most fulfilling months that I've had because I think it forces you to experience life in ways that you might otherwise shy away from. And I think building that community is really important, especially as you mentioned, Singapore can be somewhat transient. People come and people go and and there's people who call it home for a long time and, and for, a, for a less long time as well. So I think finding different ways to engage with different parts of your life, even the ones that make you uncomfortable or maybe less sure of yourself, I think is important. I think the second thing I would I would say is something you alluded to earlier in the podcast, which are think deliberately about the things you want to unlearn, relearn, or just learn. There, there's a different way potentially of doing business in Singapore compared to Indonesia, compared to Vietnam, and compared to potentially wherever you've come in from. And there are things about you that you'll want to hold on to. And there are things about you in order to thrive here that you will need to learn or potentially even unlearn. And think deliberately about those and how you can be somebody who brings the best of where you've come from and where you're going together. One interesting thing about that unlearning and relearning is obviously that's the kind of like the network and the logical intellectual side of the transition. And I think this is a very strong emotional side of it, which is the homesickness and so, so forth. So how do you think about how people should be self-regulating or managing that aspect, right, of new culture or homesickness? I still struggle with that. I think I haven't been to my home, Australia, in almost, yeah, it'll be coming on two years by the time we hit December. That is difficult. And I think sometimes it is important to just ride those ups and downs. It's okay to have a bad day. It's it's absolutely fine to be homesick. And one thing I've found is reaching out to your friends at home and saying like, oh, I really miss home and I really miss all of you. And thankfully, we can just hop on a Zoom or a, or a Skype now and it can help you feel a little bit better. I think don't be afraid to reach out and say, actually, I, I love my new life here. I'm not at all complaining about that, but there's obviously elements that I wish I could change. There's elements where I wish I could hop on a plane and, and see my loved ones as well. And I think talking about it quite openly is is also really positive. I think sometimes people feel the need to bottle it up and say, my my new life or the life I've chosen here is 100% what I wanted and I've got no regrets. And I, I think it's it's probably quite untrue for most people. And it's not to say you have lasting or deep regret, but there'll be down days and that's okay. It's okay to acknowledge those, seek some love from those who love you and who you love and forge on. Do you ever feel that there is a dynamic where there's also the fact that there's no good place <laughs> to... You know, it's interesting, right? Because you can't be in one place, but it's not perfect either, right? And then now you're in Southeast Asia and now you're homesick, but it's better for you professionally. I feel like there's a very common story for so many people great executives and leaders in Southeast Asia. And I think there's also this future, right, if that makes sense, which is, am I going to sing roots here for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? And it changes the dynamic of relationships today. Because if you know, if you're going to retire back in X place versus in Southeast Asia, it's a totally different dynamic for how you build your network and relationships and career today. How should people be thinking about their time horizon in Southeast Asia? Oh, Jeremy, that's a that's a million dollar question. That's often a hot topic um, with in my home with my friends here that have transplanted from somewhere else like we have. 
I wish I had an answer for that. I think everybody's going to take their own approach and there will be a point in time where you either feel the pull of Singapore or you feel the pull of your previous home or you you feel the pull of adventure. And I think it's it's just about making sure that you're actively conscious of that as opposed to letting life happen to you, which is, oh, I got promoted, so I'll stay or oh, I miss four seasons. Are those compelling enough reasons for you? Either the promotion or or missing cold weather. You can kind of be a little bit jokey about it. But I think for people to really think about what is it that's going to help them live a life that they'll be proud of and fulfilled by. And that typically encompasses a little bit more than your career. It typically encompasses a community of people you love and who love you. And Some people are really fortunate and find that in Singapore. I think we've been really fortunate to find really wonderful folks that we've had the chance to build friendships, build relationships with here through serendipity. And it's it's not through lack of effort from people to build roots in Singapore. I think everybody just has a different experience. Everybody has a different path that they walk on and different preferences in their life. I don't think there's a right way to think about when and if you should explore or adventure elsewhere, or whether it's time to kind of put roots down here. How do you recommend people find that and process that decision around setting roots versus adventure? How should they be? No one's going to give you answer A or B or C, especially in this podcast. But how would you recommend, how would you see people work through that problem in a process? Yeah, I've typically seen people work through it actually mostly from a family lens, which is Either their folks are getting a little bit older and it, it might be time to to celebrate their twilight years with them, or I've seen folks move for their children to say, I had a wonderful experience at X school. I'd love my child to have that as well. I've also seen people choose to stay because they're so grateful for everything they've experienced in Singapore, whether it's things like personal safety for women in particular, or the just the ease of doing business and building something phenomenal from this little island, how business friendly it can be, how open to entrepreneurs and how much the government in particular leans in to support innovation. And I think ultimately, maybe underlying all of those is what's most fundamentally important to that person at that that point in their life, which is, I think we all have a quiet, maybe silent stack rank of priorities. I think many people care about many of the same things, whether it's Their family, their loved ones, their community, their career, being able to plan and save for a wonderful retirement. But all of these have a silent stack rank or an unconscious stack rank in our minds. And I think when it starts to bubble up and become conscious and one or two of those items maybe start to pull away from the others, I think that's typically when people take action one way or another. You you also mentioned serendipity. What does that mean for you? I think for me, it's it's often right place, right time. So for example, there, there are friends you meet through work, but you might work at a particular place from X to Y years and somebody who you could have been really great friends with comes in in year Z when you've, you've moved on. And I think that's the, that's the serendipity part, which I think is something that we don't control and we can't control. And so when people say, oh, I've, I've struggled to build community. We, we often underestimate how luck plays a huge part in that, or I've struggled to achieve X, Y, Z. And I think there's 
merit in talking about the role of luck, not just only in building community, but in people's careers, in their professional journeys, the people they've managed to meet who were at that place at that time or who weren't. And I think that sometimes we we don't reflect on that role in what we've done. I think we often think of things maybe primarily as a meritocracy, either way. Amazing. I don't know ways to increase serendipity from your perspective. Especially as someone who's at EF, right, who's very much about increasing serendipity across founders. So how do you think about that? Yeah. I think I personally think about it and I expect EF also thinks about it in this way, which is really it's about liquidity of opportunities. So it's about the liquidity for from an EF perspective. We want to bring together cohorts of enough people that you could build a company with. We want to, it's so hard. I think, Jeremy, you, you'll probably have personal experience of this as an actual personal founder, um, that it's hard to find a co-founder. And so we at EF look to build cohorts where you could find a handful of people you could co-found with that we have handpicked and selected for you through rigorous interviews. And we look through thousands of candidates' profiles, every cohort. That's the number of applications we get. And so we work really hard to create those serendipitous moments. I think in, in your personal life, like I mentioned, that my my month, and I should probably do it again, my month of saying yes to everything, that was an extremely serendipitous month because I was exposed to so many different environments, experiences that I would typically have said no to or tried to avoid or found excuses not to do. Um, and I think sometimes it's it's really about expanding your comfort zone in ways that will make you feel uncertain and uncomfortable. Oh, thank you so much, Bernadette. Well, wrapping up here, I'd love to paraphrase the three big teams that I got from this. The first, of course, was you know an amazing kind of like journey alongside you about what you've learned from your professional journey, especially from the chief of staff role. And I think you gave so much great actionable thought for advice for both the chief of staffs as well as founders, which is very much what's how to build influence, how to have that seat of the table, how to have that positional authority, but also on the converse side, like what is the clarity of scope, what outcomes you're trying to drive for, and what are the future progression paths uh, for someone who's the chief of staff role. And I think the second part I really enjoyed, of course, was the part around culture change and being someone who is moving countries, moving geographies, and I think some great advice on how to be thinking about what it means in the context of Southeast Asia, both the upside, but also in terms of self-regulation and the context of family. And lastly, thank you so much throughout this entire conversation. It felt like the big theme of what you said was really the phrase serendipity about meeting the right person, making the right call, having the right conversation, saying yes to the right thing. Not the right thing, but saying yes and it turning out to be the right thing to some extent in retrospect. And I thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. I really enjoyed the chat with you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.